Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Miles Podcast. This is your host, Stephen Miller. Today, I have Keegan Prue from New York, and he is the author of IVF Dad. And it is a tremendous book. I'm halfway through it, but it's a really good read. It really is really good. Um, And I am just thankful for him to be on to share his experience, as well as have some conversation regarding about the male experience with infertility. So welcome, Keegan. Yeah, thanks, Stephen. It's great to be here. And I really appreciate you having me. Um, I'm glad to hear that you're enjoying the book. Uh, and I'm I'm excited to talk about this topic. It's something that's obviously really important to me and I know important to you. And I'm, I'm just happy that there are more spaces like this where men can talk about the experience of infertility and both how to support themselves and their partners. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's really the, the important thing is being able to support yourself and the partner, because I think that's where I think a lot of men get stuck. But we will get to that point. Um, yeah. But the question I always like I'm interested in is how did you learn about infertility in general? Not necessarily about your own diagnosis, but infertility in general. And if it was through your diagnosis, you know, that, that happens too. But I just wanted to know what were your thoughts of before like you had? Sure. Well, you know, I, I think I learned probably 98% of what I know about infertility post-diagnosis because I uh, as I'm sure many people can relate to, um, you you don't go through life uh, kind of thinking about or maybe realizing how common infertility, um, miscarriage, pregnancy loss, things like this are until you are in the thick of it. Um, and I've I've you know had the conversation so many times of thinking back on high school health class and hearing all these uh, you know kind of exhortations to uh, you know a- avoid anything at all costs that could lead to pregnancy, um, but no discussion at all of, um, you know, sort of a more positive and empowering discussion of um, what our fertility uh, as people, uh, and, and even just kind of how it works um, beyond kind of the basic biological, um, you know, details. And so I, I certainly felt that, you know, when we uh, started to, my, my wife Olivia and I started to wonder if maybe something was kind of going wrong or something wasn't happening for us, um, you know, after six or so months of, of kind of trying the old fashioned way. Um, we, I quickly learned a lot more <clears throat> from that point um, and, and really kind of quickly jumped into taking steps to figure out, okay, you know, I had, I had heard, of course, kind of the terms IVF um, in the past and knew a very little bit about it. You know, if you'd asked me five or six years ago, I probably would have said, oh, sure, IVF, you know, isn't that the test tube baby thing? Um, but but really, like I said, 98% of what I know about infertility, I certainly learned after uh, the diagnosis and, and really only had kind of that passing awareness of like, you know, some people take a little bit longer to to get pregnant than, than others. Some couples might have that experience, but um, certainly after we realized that we were having issues was when the, the bulk of my learning happened. So that was the yeah. point where I really started to read blogs, read podcasts, and just learn what are the potential causes of infertility? What are the potential treatments for infertility? And how do all these things work? Right. Yeah, and I think it was pretty much the same for me. Like I had no clue, you know, like what like infertility was the thing, you know, like that it was even possible. And even for, for male factor, right? I mean, that was even yeah. more so that I didn't even know, you know, like that that was a possibility and stuff. So yeah, I think, you know, it just touches upon like the way that we educate about, for, you know, family building and fertility and stuff definitely needs to be changed, you know, and with, so 
you said you learned about ninety percent, like when you guys were diagnosed. Mm-hmm. What were what were the steps you took? Like you got like. Did you start with the OB? I mean, did you start with yeah. you know? Did you did you guys have the workups together? Was it was it Olivia like or like what did that look like? Yeah, definitely. So so we started. Um, you know, one thing we definitely learned is to be proactive because you know anybody kind of knows whether you're going to whether you end up kind of going to fertility clinic or even just getting kind of basic workups like this is the the nature of healthcare systems in most places around the world is you're not necessarily going to get in immediately right. um and and there is an importance of being proactive and and you know being uh, as as kind of uh, active as you can and making sure that you get these things checked out and so we decided after about six months of trying all the kind of the traditional medical advice is to wait up until one year of active trying without a pregnancy. Um, but because we were already in our early thirties, um, knew that we wanted to have at least hopefully two kids, maybe three, uh, we kind of realized very quickly time is of the essence here. And so we, um, kind of did a few things in tandem. We, um, you know, Olivia reached out to her regular OB office and said, um, I'd like to come in and just kind of discuss what's going on, see if there's any, you know, testing you could help with. Um, at the same time, uh, as she had that initial appointment, we asked, you know, what are the things I should be doing? Um, you know, and of course her, go and get your semen analysis. Here's how you do it. Um, I actually ended up going to a fertility clinic, uh, the one that we ended up using to do that semen analysis before we even kind of had met with them, uh, or, or, you know, engaged with them. So all of that was, was kind of the spring of let's see, 2018. Um, so we kind of ran those things in parallel and, and, you know, what we, what we found out at that point from the regular OB and from my semen analysis was that there was nothing obviously wrong. Um, and no, nothing, no indication of what was happening. And so the, uh, Olivia's regular OB said, let's try a couple of months of timed intercourse with letrozole. Maybe that will help things out. Um, but as I mentioned, we were also being very mindful of being proactive. And so right. um, at the same time as all of this was happening, we said, let's just get our, see, see what the wait time is for an appointment with a reproductive endocrinologist at the fertility clinic. And of course the lead time or that was several months. And so yeah. we booked an appointment, which ended up being in the summer of 2018. And we said, hopefully we don't need this. Maybe we'll get pregnant, but let's get this on the books now so that we can be proactive. And so, uh, yeah, that was, that was the point at which we finally got in with an RE and, and kind of learned more. Okay. Yeah. And that's it itself. I mean, it, it being proactive, even with just getting this human analysis, because there's so many doctors that are like, Oh, that's not, a, you know, there's that narrative that fertility is just a woman's issue, mm-hmm. you know, and that's definitely not the case. You know, yeah. and that's just been perpetuated, you know, like through generations, you know, and to yeah. equate to say, hey, why don't we check out both of us? I just smart, right? It's a smart move. I mean, like you do it in the beginning, you know, and that was, you know, from my experience, that was our luck too. You know, our OB was like, let's check both, you know, like, us, you know, yep. to see and have that awareness that this, you know, like, there is male factor infertility and stuff. And let's just see what, you know, look at both sides. Yeah. And again, something that I think is, is I certainly had no idea about until we got more into really learning the ins and outs of infertility, the statistics, uh, you know, um, just the fact that most current kind of research suggests that anywhere from like 40 to 50% of infertility cases have some 
degree of male factor contributing to them, you know, that statistic blew my mind. I had no idea. To your point, that I think we come in with this idea that it's it's something uh, that's just you know related to something that's going on with, with the female reproductive system, definitely not the case. So that was something I was really thankful to learn, but also shocked to learn. I think a lot of people were very surprised by that if they're not uh, really, you know, in depth in the infertility community and statistics. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even when I've had conversations with other people about, you know, male factor and stuff, and she's like, I didn't, you know, like I've had a coworker that was like, I didn't think that that was a thing, you know, like, I'm like, you're in your thirties, <laughs> you know, like, how do you yeah. not know this, you know, but, but it's true. Like we don't talk about it, you know, and, and I think to one of your points that you could kind of make in your book is we men is we don't often talk about this. So it really gives you the image that it doesn't affect men, you know, like it doesn't impact men. Men don't have infertility because we don't talk about it. You know, like, and it's kind of like this really sidebar, like, you know, that perpetuates that narrative, you know, and yeah. yeah. Yep. And and just the degree to which too, you know, I think it's very important for, for men to think about all the ways that they can over time um, really optimize their own fertility health. Um, Cause I think that's yeah. something we don't hear about as much, you know, as much as there are a lot of really, uh, you know, difficult kind of, uh, emotional more messages and stereotypes i would say men here that we'll definitely i'm sure get into shortly yeah. uh, there are so many you know really damaging messages that women experience about their bodies and just physical health um and so i think that that um, is again a message that can be you know overpowering um and, and really damaging for women but it's something that men don't think about as much as you know right. the choices we make um about exercise and the foods we eat and things like that do affect our sperm health um and so there there are things again we can be doing um to kind of set ourselves up for for optimal fertility um, yeah. but again we don't necessarily hear about those things as much no not at all you know and I remember this reading in your book, you're talking about, you know, you guys had started IVF mm -hmm. and I wanted to have your, your thoughts on what were, what was your thoughts and what was your kind of experience when you first started IVF? Because I yeah. know for me, like when we did our first egg retrieval, I just kept asking myself, is this worth it? Mm -hmm. Is this worth putting her through these procedures? And, you know, like, and we had to do multiple rounds of egg banking and stuff in our story. But yeah. I just wanted to know, like, what was that experience like when you had to, you did your first round of IVF? Yeah, yeah I, I definitely, you know, relate to what you said. I was, um, I guess I was, I was grateful in that I had uh, kind of read the blogs, heard a lot of stories on, um, on podcasts and things. So I had a little bit of an idea of how difficult the experience would be, but I think definitely as, as you know, the male partner uh, with my wife, I definitely relate to those feelings that you said of kind of this guilt you almost feel of um, there's so much that she is going through. And, and, you know, even just the, the hormones for an egg retrieval, we know can be uh, so difficult um, and just so uh, requires so much endurance and, and struggle and, um, yeah, that was, that was something I, I felt prepared for. Um, but just because I knew a little bit that it was coming, but it's so hard to, to 
know what it's going to be like until you're actually in it. So I definitely um, relate to kind of that level of guilt. Um, you know, I think the other thing that I felt a little bit at the beginning, um, what, which I, I think, again, a lot of people can relate to is an initial feeling that um, of, of some degree of excitement maybe is not the right word, but, um, you know, finally feeling like we're maybe doing something that can move us forward. Yeah. Uh, after a long time of, of feeling like it's just been, uh, you know, failure, failure, this hasn't worked, that hasn't worked. Um, so I think there, there's a little bit of initial excitement, but of course, again, as, as anybody knows, who's been through IVF, um, then you get into what I call the, you know, the infertility yo-yo of this just up and down and the, you know, the IVF hunger games, we call it where it's like you, you suddenly get into this kind of, um, this like period of where you're, you're retrieving eggs. You want to see how many eggs are we going to get. You do that. Then you wait and see, okay, how many of those eggs are going to fertilize? Then you wait and see how many of those fertilized eggs are going to develop appropriately. And then how many of those, you know, if you're doing genetic testing, how many of those are normal, which is something we ended up doing for, for right. a variety of reasons. Um, but it sort of transformed from that initial excitement into just this realization of, wow, this is a real slog. Um, and there's so many things that can go wrong in the process. And also just that it's not um, a magic solution. Um, you know, I think the overall success rates, you know, depending on, on age and various other factors, of course, mm -hmm. but you know, the, the best you're going to get is maybe like 50 to 60% and, and depending on age, it can be lower than that. So it's not a silver bullet. Um, and so that was something that was hard to grapple with too. It was just, yeah. that. um, still at the end of it, after all that pain and struggle that, that you talked about, um, this, this might not be the thing that works for us. Yeah. I didn't. I can completely relate to it not being, you know, that, that, that roller coaster of emotions. And I also think that there's a lot of people in the general public that think IVF is like, it's a hundred percent guarantee that you're going to have a child after this, you know, and how many times have I heard, you know, like, anytime I've heard, like, oh, congratulations, you're doing IVF. And I'm like, it's, not a guarantee you know like it's not you know like i think that's where people see that and i think that's where some of that you know at least from a religious standpoint you know they think that well they're playing god you know like and they think that it's guaranteed to work right you're gonna have a baby yeah. with that you know and i've mentioned this before in previous episodes where there was a doctor from south america and there was so much pushback and this was in the 80s where they were very much like, like you're playing God, like you can't do that. You know, you can't play God. And the way that he described it to some of these government officials was like, I'm just facilitating a meeting, you know, and leaving it up to, yeah, you know, and I even remember when we did our transfer, that's what exactly what our, our reproductive endocrinologist said is in God's hands now, yep. you know, like when we did our transfer and it's really, it really is. Like, it's not like you're I mean, there's a lot of science, like like you said in your book, there's a lot of things that have come a long ways away, but there's also, like I said, there's also more that needs to be, you know, talked about and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So, you talk about the, 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 the IVF yo-yo, right? Was there something, like, were there some things where, like, you, like, when you reflect back, like, when you're in that phase of your life in family building, were there things that you're just like, you can laugh at now that you're like, well, why, why did I do that? <laughs> you know, like, why, like, what was I thinking kind of moments were the things that 
kind of pop up for you where you can like look back and just kind of laugh at it now? <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's, it's, it's a lot easier to laugh at it now <laughs> yeah. than it was before, but yeah, there, there are definitely some things, you know, things we look back on and laugh or think back fondly on, you know, I, I write in the book a little bit about um, kind of one of my big uh, mess ups along the way, which was I, I, you know, during Olivia's second pregnancy, which we had two uh, pregnancies that ended in miscarriages before our uh, daughter Eliza was born in mm-hmm. 2020. Um, and during the second uh, pregnancy, um, I really kind of went down the rabbit hole of research around, um, you know, gluten-free and uh, thyroid issues, which is something that uh, Olivia has a couple of thyroid, uh, minor thyroid issues okay. that are well addressed. But uh, I just found myself down the rabbit hole of this, you know, uh, you know, had like 30 tabs open on my, on my web browser with all these research studies from the last 30 years. And, you know, basically left that rabbit hole convinced like, oh, we got to get all the gluten out of our house. We got to, you know, eliminate it. And, and that'll be the, the magic thing that we've been looking for. And, so went to the grocery store, got all these gluten-free products and brought them home without asking Olivia, of course, or telling her all of these things. Um, and so, you know, she came in, took one look at all that stuff and was like, what is this junk that you, <laughs> you've got? So, uh, you know, I, I definitely um, ate some crow that night. I feel feel bad about it, but, you know, we, we do laugh about it now because it's, uh, you know... I can look back and say it was coming from a good place, right? I wanted to do right. everything possible to set us up for success. Um, but uh, maybe that was not the most elegant way to go about it. You know, if I could do it over again, I would maybe go back and say to Olivia, hey, I, I read some of these things. You know, what do you think? Is this something we should ask the doctor about? Um, and of course, later we ended up asking the doctor about it. And the doctor said, you know, here's what the research shows. Uh, yeah. You know, there's maybe some benefit, but you already have a healthy diet to begin with. So don't worry about it. But yeah, so, so I definitely look back on, I call it gluten gate now. Um, but uh, yeah, we, we can laugh at that uh, experience now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And like, I've, I, you know, like there's times where like, I've looked back now, like, and now like my wife and I can laugh, you know, in the moment, you know, like now, but at the moment I was, like I said, I think it was just trying to establish some control in your life because you mm-hmm. in the IVF, like there's a lot out of your control. And especially yeah. as a man, even as a woman, you know, but as a man, like we have no way of, you know, eggs and all that stuff. You know, we have no, you know, power over that. Yeah. And I just I remember like our first transfer. And I don't think I've ever actually shared this, you know, ever before, but like some of our close friends know, but so they always say eating pineapple, right? Eating pineapple was supposed mm-hmm. to be good. Like right after a transfer, you're supposed to eat the core and all that stuff. And my wife had bought pineapple. We had it, you know, we got rid of plastic, everything. We had glass and she, you know, was sitting in our chair in the living room and I asked, you know, okay, can, can you get me some pineapple? I was like, yeah, I'll let you some. And I went in and I opened the fridge door and the glass came out of the fridge. And it went on the floor and shattered. And I was like, oh, crap. Like, I just ruined the pineapple. Like, how am I going to fix this? Right. So, like, I I threw the glass away. You know, like, I didn't, like, try to bother. You know, and that was another thing. I didn't want to stress her out and bother. So, I didn't say anything. So, I just, like, I threw the glass away. Like, I washed the pineapple. And I gave her a bowl of the cut of pineapple. And she eats it. And she's like, why why is this pineapple crunchy? And... (laughs) I was like, oh crap. I'm like, but yeah. there's, I didn't even think in the moment that, hey, there's possibly some little tiny little glass yeah. cards and stuff in, like in the pineapple. Um, 
which like now we can joke about it, but she was just like, you just gave me glass shards. You know, just like, <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, not my proudest moment, you know, like, but yeah. it came from yeah. that place. So like, okay, we need this. This is going to be the thing, you know, like that's going to help her, you know, make or break it in reality. Like I could have easily went to the store and bought a new pineapple, you know, like, but yeah, yeah. you're still in the moment, you know, like, and you're trying to do whatever you can because like, really there is a, there's a lot you don't control, you know? Yeah. You don't. And I think that's, that's just such an important point that I still relate to is that's one of the hardest things about the whole experience is you, there's so much that is out of your control. And like, that's we're we're humans. We want to have control over things. That's a very natural um, (laughs) reaction to a threat, which is basically what this is in your life is is kind of a a threat to the plans that you figured were going to go, uh, you know, as they typically do. And so having that lack of control is really hard. And I think, you know, what, what both of our stories illustrate too is another thing, which is that, um, you know, it can be very easy to be caught up in this feeling that we have to do everything perfect. Um, and the slightest kind of slip up or, um, variation from, you know, uh, protocol or something we read online about, you know, all, all the things, you know, that we, we could make a list of probably about 20 of them of, you know, what is it like you get the French fries after the transfer and you, um, you know, as you said, you got to eat pineapple at certain times, you have to, you know, all, all this list of things. And it's very easy to get caught up in that perfectionism of we must do all these things perfectly at the right time. Um, which, you know, it's, it's always good. It's good to, do things that help us feel like we're being involved. Um, right. But at the same time, I think it also sets us up for maybe holding ourselves to way too high of a standard um, and also sets ourselves up for feeling, uh, you know, disappointed or upset at ourselves when, when really, as you said, so much of this is out of our control. Like we're, we're you know, working at a level of so many things have to go right um, that to, you know, to beat ourselves up because, uh, you know, we dropped the pineapple or, you know, had a, had a meal of gluten is, is I think a, a little bit silly as long as we're kind of thinking, thinking holistically about yeah. what we can set ourselves up to be successful. Yeah. And so like, what were some of the things that you did, you know, like to kind of manage that yoga? Cause I think that's also helpful to find out. I mean, and every, and everybody's different, you know, but mm-hmm. I just think it's sometimes helpful to figure out like how, like, how did you manage, you know, like, your emotions and stuff. Cause as men, we typically bottle stuff up inside and like, and we yep. just kind of let it fester. But I think finding those strategies kind of like that little self care, you know, like, and how to manage it, you know, like I think finding some possible strategies, but like, what were some of the things that you yeah. did to kind of help manage it? Yeah, it was, it was definitely a learning process. And, and, you know, I think back on that second pregnancy a lot because I think that was kind of brought out a lot of my worst tendencies. You know, like I said, I was spending so much time looking at research studies and sort of obsessing about getting more information or feeling like I had to fix something or take action around something, which I think is a very powerful message men hear a lot is that we're expected to fix things, to take action, to, uh, you know, uh, be, be doing things. And, and like you said, there's a lot that's out of our control during fertility treatments. Um, there's, there's a lot of times where really all we can do is wait. And I think filling that void was, was kind of a dangerous spot to be in because, you know, we can fill it with things that are going to help us kind of get through that time, or we can fill it with things like I was with opening 30 or 35 or 40 tabs of of research articles and obsessing over what we need to do um, based on that. So I I think that was uh, a a good wake up call, if nothing else for me, uh, going into, you know, subsequent pregnancies of how can I kind of manage my time 
a little bit better? Um, yeah. and, and what are things that I've done that were not helpful? And what are some things I could do that were helpful instead? So some of the things that really helped me subsequently were, um, you know, first just meditation. Um, you know, it, it helped me kind of notice more when I was getting obsessive about something or when I needed to just kind of clear my mind and give myself a break from thinking about, you know, what if this happens or have we done enough of this or have I researched enough of that? Um, and that was really helpful. Um, in, in subsequent pregnancies, I was, I found myself a lot more able to kind of press pause and say, hold on a minute, let me, uh, you know, let me, let me give myself kind of a mental break here. Yeah. Um, so I found that really helpful. Um, definitely, you know, that was the point where I started to do some kind of writing journaling just around what we were going through and, and found that really helpful too, again, just to first kind of write out and process, uh, what we were going through, because I think what you said is so important, you know, men are, are received so many messages that discourage us from sharing what we're feeling, especially things like being sad, grieving, uh, upset. Um, those are, those are things that by and large, we, we spend a lot of our lives hearing that we're not supposed to talk about. Um, and so I think kind of writing about what we had been through helped me just understand and express those more. Um, and, and, you know, helped me also turn more to, to kind of writing and reflecting, you know, what has been helpful for me, um, in, you know, kind of to date in this journey and, and what things have not been helpful and really crystallizing that. So I could say, you know, going into the next pregnancy, I'm going to notice when I'm getting that obsessive thinking about like, what's the research mm -hmm. I need to look at and just kind of hit pause before it spirals out. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that mindfulness is like, it's really kind of grounding you to be in like just present in the moment. Cause like when you either get stuck in the past or, you know, like it's or future, you know, like it's those what ifs in that rabbit hole and bringing you back to grounding yourself in what is the current present moment? Where am I at right now? You know, it's so helpful. And I, and there's a lot of research that backs that up too. It's like this, that mindfulness, you know, is very helpful in managing some of the emotions and the psychological distress of, you know, infertility. And I know one of the things that like my, like my wife and I did was we, we hosted exchange students. <laughs> and in partly because we, we had this, we knew that if we didn't have something to do with our time, Mm. We would be thinking about this hundred percent of the time, you know, like, and yeah. finding those things where like by having an exchange to it, which actually one of our former ones is now here with us for a month visiting, but um, it allowed us the opportunity to focus on other things other than fertility. And yeah. I think that's super important, you know, like, and it helped us, you know, there were things for sure that we, I would do differently. Like I would communicate better. I would communicate more, but I think it helped us so much by focusing on something else you know we were able to go to those yep. school events and take them places and learn about their culture and have somebody that really could you know their benefits it was a mutual benefit right they're coming to learn about american culture and we're learning about theirs and it has helped all of us out and yeah. i think finding something like that too is like finding like what are those things you can do that it's not tied to fertility mm -hmm. because it's so yep. easy to get caught up and that's all you think about all the time yeah, I, I think that's such important advice and I can totally relate to that. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it can it can really feel like you're sort of not allowed to plan other things that aren't fertility related. And it's easy to get into that mindset of like, well, what if we're what if we're doing another egg retrieval? What if we're doing what if we just had a transfer and we're, 
you know, in the two weeks, wait, what are we, you know, there's all those what ifs that can, you can yep. kind of set up those walls around, I can't plan a trip, I can't plan something else that we're going to do, but it's, it's so important to have other non-fertility things going on in your life. Um, because yeah, it can, it can be all encompassing very quickly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I, re- I remember like in your book talking about you were planning a trip, you know, like, and you were just starting, I think you're just starting your first round and you had the medications coming and stuff and you're yeah. like, you're trying to figure out like, well, what do we do with the medications? You know, like, yeah. how are we going to get them in? How are they going to, you know, like go bad and stuff. And, um, but you were able to process through that and say like, Hey, let's ask so-and-so, you know, like if they could just put it in and put it in the fridge for us. Yeah. You know, like, if you, but yeah, like you could have yeah. easily missed out on an opportunity to go on that trip, you know, like and stay at home and stuff, but you still did it. You know, like you found ways to manage it around it. We did. And looking back, those those mental breaks and even just having little things to look forward to, you know, there were definitely times in treatment where you do have to put things off if you're in the middle of, you know, maybe getting ready for uh, an egg retrieval or, or recovering or things like that. Um, you know, if, if you or your partner have any sort of surgery, of course, you've got to you got to put time aside. But yeah. we we made efforts as much as possible to always have, even if it was just a short day trip, you know, not going super far you know, maybe just go in, we're in upstate New York, we'd say like, let's go to Vermont. Um, that's not far for us to something we can do in a day or just an overnight. Yeah. And having those little things to look forward to was really important because it does, you know, you need those things. Um, and it doesn't have to be something huge, but you definitely need those non-fertility things to look forward to. And, and I think it's also, as you said, so important to maintain that connection and communication with your partner through this time, because uh, it's important to it's really important to talk about the fertility related things. Um, and, and that's one thing that I know can be a big challenge for men is feeling like they can open up. And, and I certainly hear in talking to uh, a lot of um, female partners too, is just, uh, you know, how do, how do we get, you know, men to open up more? So and it's not to say that's not important, but you also need time to not talk about <laughs> fertility yeah. and do other things that are not related to it. And that you enjoy because um, we, we know that going through infertility can really, take a lot of joy away from your life. Um, so, you know, anything you can do to, to give some things that are, you look forward to is so important. Yeah. And I know you briefly mentioned it just a little bit ago, but you were talking about, you know, some of the stereotypes, you know, that we often hear as men, you know, like, and how, like, how do you feel that that makes it harder for men, you know, to, I wouldn't say live up to those stereotypes because everyone's different and stereotypes sort of not be hundred percent accurate, but how do those stereotypes kind of impact how men experience the infertility or family building journey? Yeah. I, I, I think they, you know, I always say all these stereotypes we have heard a lot. And as you say, they vary, but um, the, the stereotypes we tend to hear as men really hold us back when it comes to infertility, because some of the things we hear are, you know, men are not supposed to show emotion, right? From, from early age, we hear so often, you know, boys don't cry, boys don't cry. Um, so you're getting that kind of built up experience of not being able to show emotions, which I mean, hello, infertility is a really emotional, heavy experience. You're going to feel sad. You're going to feel upset. You're going to, you know, potentially have times where you're grieving, um, even if it's just grieving the ideas you had about what your life is going to be like. So um, that's a, that's a really powerful shift right there. You know, the other one, definitely men fix things, men take action. As we've talked about a few times already, 
there's just a lot of waiting in fertility treatment. There's times where literally everything is out of your hands and, and what's happening is, you know, uh, waiting for medications to work or, or waiting for, you know, word from the embryologist as to how many eggs fertilized. Um, there's just so many points at which there's nothing else we can do except do our best and try to take care of ourselves. So I think that's really hard. I think there's also just, you know, early in the process, <clears throat> there can be a real pervasive feeling of, of shame for both partners, right? Whether you're male or female, I think there's, there's kind of this idea out in the world, again, another stereotype that, you know, if you're a real man, you can quote unquote, get your wife pregnant easily. Um, and there's, there's a lot of kind of ideas there tied into, you know, how much of a man are you has something to, to do with your sperm count or virility or all, all those things that are out there in the world. So I think that can be something to kind of overcome first. And I think that's what can lead to some fear about the semen analysis, um, is, you know, that, that fear of what if I find out that I have low sperm, but I have no sperm, you know, how does that reflect on me as a man? Um, and, and I think all of these beliefs, um, are, are important to just kind of first start by recognizing and understanding. Um, and then second, kind of giving yourself uh, some, some grace around, you know, these are things that you may have been hearing a lot from society for your entire life. So they're not necessarily true or true about you. Um, but then really working and like I said, maybe writing, meditating, whatever kind of things work for you just to kind of process through them. And it's not gonna happen overnight, but um, just to help kind of interrogate those, because that's going to set you up to go through infertility and the difficult things of it with a lot more, I think, positive feelings than if you're still harboring onto these stereotypes. Yeah. And it takes practice. And I, I just, I know like how, you know, it is my, like my full-time job social worker. So like I've years, like, you know, like I've been talking about like how, like, how are you feeling about this? You know, like, and going through like mental health struggles and stuff and help people with that. And it is like, it is really uncomfortable. I think for men, especially when you're not used to talking about like, what is this experience? Like it's, it's uncomfortable at first, but then as the more and more you do it, like it just becomes easier and easier, you know, to kind of share that experience. And it's it's a super helpful to get it out there, you know, because I just I remember I remember doing this in the semen analysis. I remember thinking in my head, I was like, I hope to God it's not me. Mm-hmm. Because I, I just kept saying like I think I just pray to God it's not me because I, I don't know if I could handle the guilt, you yeah. know, like of being like the one that I felt like I was a barrier, even though we both had issues, but I was a barrier, you know, like mm-hmm. I, I put more weight on my issue than hers, you know, like which we both had issues that were equal, you know, and I can see that now, you know, in the moment though, like it's something as men, like we take ownership of things that aren't necessarily our issue to, to, to own, you know, like it's something that with, we didn't cause it, you know? So I think it's helpful to have that. And I know um, one of my previous guests, John Waldman had talked about in the book, yeah, like, he says something about the, I can't remember what it was, but it was something about like, like I'm more of a man because I have X amount of sperm. You know, like it's like, you're not going to say that in everyday conversation. It's kind of yeah. like saying it out loud sometimes I think helps yeah. us realize that this is really silly. <laughs> you know, like this is yeah. really like yeah. what we're saying. Like, what are we internally saying to ourselves? You know? Um, yeah. And I think another way to think about it too is, is like, if this was a friend, what would you say to them? Mm-hmm. Because we are our own worst critic, 
Oh, yeah. You know, like, and if we were to say the things that we were saying to ourselves internally to somebody else, we wouldn't have any friends. Totally. (laughs) Totally. So, so like taking that step back, I said, be mindful, like you said, and just trying like, okay, this was a friend, but what I tell Yep. And then being able to kind of share like, okay, this is hard. This is hard stuff to go through, you know, like, and the psychological distress is, is immense. You know, like it's the research shows, you know, it's, it's equivalent of receiving a cancer diagnosis, mm-hmm. you know, and it's a really long and tough journey. And some people have shorter journeys. Some people have longer and some people in the middle, but regardless of how long it's been, it's still tough, you yeah. know, and managing, you know, like yourself, your own stuff is super important. Yeah. So do you have like any tips or advice on managing you like yourself? I know we kind of briefly talked about it, but if there's any, like besides the mindfulness stuff. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, I think I, I definitely want to talk a little bit more about something you just said, which I think is such an important tip, which is to really think about how would you react if a friend told you about this? Um, because I, I, you know, I think we can't emphasize that enough that we are our own worst critic. And, you know, when you start to think and kind of write down the, the things you're thinking in your own head and the things you're telling yourself about what you're going through, um, it becomes, you know, it almost becomes like background noise and we don't stop and recognize uh, how critical we might be being of ourselves or how much we're, we're kind of only making it worse by, right. you know, putting pressure on ourselves. And so um, I think that, that that kind of tactic or tip you just described um, was really helpful for me and I think can be so helpful for others and, um, and also a great thing to, to use for kind of a prompt for journaling or something to think about if you're going to do mindfulness or even, you know, uh, you know, if you're a person who, who faith is important to, you can do it during prayer, you know, uh, but just using that mindset of really trying to shift it and say, okay, who's, who's a friend of mine I really care, care about? If they came to me and told me that they're going through all the things I am, what would I say to them? Uh, is such a powerful exercise uh, because it will, it might feel really weird at first <laughs> because we become yeah. so ingrained and in, in you know pushing and prodding ourselves and, and critiquing ourselves. But um, yeah, I think using that as either a writing prompt, just something to think about, um, or just a reminder. You know, there I, I think I had a sticky note on my, um, you know, all of my computers and things that I use in personal and work, uh, with a reminder like that of just saying, you know, what would you, what would you say to your best friend, um, was, was such a powerful reminder to come back to. And I've actually noticed, you know, now I've kind of been thinking about that for four or five years and it's so much more natural, um, and, and goes to show, you know, as you kind of alluded to earlier, the, the, the research that shows we can really change the ways we think, you know, our, our brains are flexible. Um, and so I would really encourage, you know, men, women, everybody out there, but um, really think about using that tactic as a tool um, because I think it can be so powerful in shifting not just how we're thinking about our fertility situation, but really, you know, how do we think about ourselves throughout our entire lives? Uh, right. and that's a really powerful shift. Yeah, absolutely. So were there things that when you were going through IVF that you reflected on, you're like, I really wish I knew about that earlier. Because yeah. I think that's something that, you know, like as men have gone through IVF, like we, we have the ability to reflect, you know, mm-hmm. like and help out the next, I guess, cohort of people that would be in that family building phase. So what, like what were some things that kind of stood out for you? Yeah, I think if I could kind of go back and approach a couple of 
things that I wish I knew earlier, you know, the first that we talked about a little bit is just understanding that it's not a guarantee to work and using that to kind of manage my own expectations. Um, I, I kind of, um, which is, which is hard to do because you always want to have, you know, the most number of eggs and fertilization, things like that. But the more I knew about just kind of the reality of what we were working against helped me set more realistic expectations. You know, I'll, I'll kind of give an example here. You know, I think thinking back on our first egg retrieval, um, we, you know, just wanted the most fertilization, the most, you know, viable embryos, the, the highest numbers. Um, and what we kind of learned over time was, you know, after a couple of miscarriages and, and genetic testing was that um, for whatever reason, a lot of our embryos seem to be genetically abnormal. Um, so didn't fully understand why that was, but um, being able to do that and understand that I think helped me to reset my expectations more in subsequent cycles to, to literally, there were times when Olivia and I would just say to each other, we need one genetically normal, good embryo. Like we're not setting our sights on five. We're not setting our sights on 10. We, we were able to reflect and say, we know that's not realistic for us now. Yeah. So just give us the one. Um, and that, that I think allowed us to feel more successful which was good. Um, we weren't holding ourselves to, you know, an unrealistic standard. Um, so I think that helped in, in really helping to think setting expectations. And then, you know, the other thing I wish I had just known more about, or maybe made more steps to learn about earlier is just all the options to family building, uh, adoption, fostering, um, donor eggs, donor embryos, donor sperm. Um, those were, those were options I didn't look at until kind of farther along in our process. Um, and I wish I had taken a few steps just to learn about those more earlier. Um, because I think we eventually kind of came to a point where we said, you know, some of these other options would, would definitely be things that we would, um, you know, explore kind of depending on how things ended up going when we were, you know, after that second miscarriage kind of at the lowest point in our journey. Um, and it was good to know that that helped, I think, also kind of free us up to say, it's not all on this cycle. Of course, we want the cycle to work. We want the next transfer to work, but it's not it just, I think, allowed me and I think Olivia too to kind of put a little bit of a weight off our shoulders of like, not everything is on this one occurrence. Yeah. Of course, we want it to work, but we know that um, we have other viable options and, and with persistence, we can become parents by one of these options and those will work yeah. for us. I kind of wish I had, uh, in addition to learning about IVF and fertility treatment, spent some more time earlier just learning about all the other pathways. Yeah. And I can relate to the expectations too, because we did our first transfer and statistically the percentage of the first transfer working was small. And we knew that going in, but when it didn't work, it was still just as devastated, you know, like as leaving us to like, okay, now we have one, you know, one perfect embryo left, you know, like, and then we still have some other ones and some are like have low mosaicism, but Mm -hmm. which to anybody that wants to know about that, it's really low. So a low mosaic embryo is where there is more normal cells than more than abnormal. So there's some abnormalities in there. So, and there's been some research that show that they're, they could be just as viable. Well, they're viable, but not as much as a perfect embryo, but it's, there still could result in pregnancy. Um, but it's like I said, managing that expectation because it was just as devastating, you know, because like, I get, you're right. You want it to work. You want this one to be the one, 
but the reality of working the first time was, like I said, percentages are small, you know, and it takes on yeah. average about two or three, you know, cycles and stuff to become successful. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, there's a lot of, a lot of difficult lessons to learn over time. And, and as I kind of reflect back, I definitely know, you know, there were, there were some that I just had needed time to learn. Um, but there were some, some things I think we can definitely to your point, do gaining better understanding will help us have better expectations throughout the process, which is so important because as we've said a few times, it's not perfect. And so to expect perfection, you know, of ourselves or of each cycle is, is not realistic. And so, um, hopefully everybody can feel like it's okay to set more realistic expectations and you're not, you know, it's not that you're showing that you have less hope or less faith or anything else like that. It's, it's just, you know, it's a hard process. And so anything we can do to make it a little bit easier on ourselves is something that I think we should consider. I think to even expand on that, and this is something that I'm just going to ask off the cuff and you probably have no idea I'm going to ask this, but you guys were successful, you know? Yeah. And do you feel like infertility is still, is like, is still like with you? Because I, for, for me, I very much can catch myself, it's not all the time now, but like I catch myself like looking at larger families and thinking, well, it must be nice to not have had any issues. I mean, yeah, granted, I don't know, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming, but I think there's this idea that like, oh, we've been successful, we're pregnant, everything's good. Like everything yeah. is just going to disappear and we're just going to be on our happy, merrily way. And that's not kind of true. It's like managing the pregnancy and then even feeling afterwards. So I guess for, for me, it's like, what were some of the, your thoughts you were regarding infertility like after you were successful? Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, I feel like that's the question we all kind of come to when those of us who are kind of fortunate enough to find success, whatever that means uh, for you individually yeah. is, you know, are we still infertile? Like, but how does this play in our lives? And, and I think I, I definitely, uh, and my experience has been, you know, those, those lessons I've learned, those difficulties we went through have certainly not left me. Um, you know, we're, we're very fortunate to be expecting our second child in October, um, through IVF again, through, awesome. um, so we're very fortunate there, but, um, you know, uh, definitely pregnancy after infertility is a whole uh, can of worms too. That's really challenging and, and anxiety provoking. Um, and even even as I kind of look ahead now, you know, this this will be uh, our our last child. Um, you know, barring a real surprise. But <laughs> really, like this is we're looking at the point where you know having our second child would be kind of the completion of our family building journey. Um, and, and I think we've been kind of on on the other side of of at least since having our first daughter, Eliza. Um, I've definitely had enough time to reflect and, and realize that it, it doesn't fully leave you. Um, of course, it's <clears throat> much easier in some ways now to reflect back on the process. You know, that was something I definitely learned in writing the book was that um, I think it was actually helpful that we were still going through the preparation for, you know, thinking about another transfer. And then I, I was writing a lot of the kind of uh, last bits of the book kind of as we were heading up to the transfer that resulted in this current uh, pregnancy. And so, I think that was very good because it kept me in that mindset um, and reminded me how, um, you know, of, of just how difficult and, and tenuous it can feel day to day and even hour to hour when you're, when you're really deep, like in that struggle um, and how quickly you can go between, you know, feeling this hope of like something, something, I think this is good. I think something's good, good is going to happen. I feel positive about this. 
to, you know, sometimes literally five minutes later being like, no, I don't know, like, are we making the right choice? Should we be waiting? Should we, you know, all these things. And so um, I, I definitely um, think that it's something that will, will stay with us in ways throughout our lives. Uh, you know, I think definitely, you know, Olivia and I have still said many times, you know, we find out somebody, uh, you know, a, a friend or something got got pregnant and they're like, oh yeah, we just, you know, started trying in the first cycle. Uh, lo and behold, there we were, you know, that that definitely still stings a little bit. And there's still that feeling of, you know, despite the fact that we're thrilled and, and just get so much joy from, from the family we've been able to uh, very fortunately create, um, you still get that twinge of, uh, I guess it's just a reminder of, of all the things that we had to go through that, that other people didn't necessarily. Um, <laughs> but of, of course, the, I guess the flip side and, you know, reaching out and connecting with so many people in the community um, for, for fertility and fertility and, and all of that is, uh, it does, I think, give you a greater appreciation that uh, everybody is struggling with something. Um, and so, you know, I think it helps us have that appreciation a little bit more, but yeah, I, I think it's certainly something that will, will stay with us and, and mark our lives in ways forever. And I think the, you know, the kind of biggest challenge from here on out, I think is just not, um, you know, expressing to our children how thankful we are for them um, but not, uh, uh, I guess not making it seem like too, too strange, particularly of a, of a thing of how they came to us, because as yeah. you said, I, I view it the, the same way it's, uh, or, or that the, you know, doctor, um, in South America said, I, I kind of have been able to reflect on it and think about it the same way now of just, you know, people, people build their families in different ways. We just needed a little bit more help than others. Yeah. Yeah, and I often think as well. Well, like my own kid, you know, like we, I, my boys are or three, you know, and people have asked, you know, like it's like, are you going to share with them about like how they were conceived if they were, you know, were conceived by IVF? And I'm like, you know, absolutely, you know, like there's nothing shameful about it, you know, like you know, and I think if we don't talk about it, like it's just and like, like I said, perpetuating that stigma, that that shame and stuff and i am not yet prepared for that you know i mean there are three so but <laughs> thinking about it, i mean I, I think about like if they would ever ask me like well how much did you pay you know like to do it you know like it's like having those conversations you know so like there's even in parenting like it comes up you know because at some point like like i'm a strong believer that you tell them you know like this is how it is you know but it's definitely something that sticks with you it is, yeah. and I, you know, I think is hopefully something others will kind of think about no matter where you're at in your journey. I, I'm sure you probably feel a little bit the same way just in doing this podcast and having these conversations. But I, I do think that reaching out and connecting with other people or sharing your story or, um, you know, finding other folks who are going through the same thing and just being being a listening ear can can really help. And it certainly helped me just kind of feel that we went through all of this for some reason. Or, yeah. or maybe maybe not for some reason, but um, I've been able to turn this really hard experience into something that hopefully can help others. Um, and I think that's something I hope others will think about too. Is you know, um, think about how you can you can reach out uh, because you'll find you know once you once you start sharing your story, no matter where you're at in your journey, you'll find out how many people uh, have been through infertility. Um, I, I always say it's like the the you know they come out of the woodwork. You know, the clown car opens up, but it's like if you start talking to a few people about 
this subject, yeah. uh, you'll be shocked to find out how many people you have maybe known for years and had no idea what they had been through. Um, so that both helps you feel less alone, but I think can help you feel that uh, the struggle is kind of um, converting itself into something meaningful over the long yeah. term. And that, that very much has helped me because that's exactly what like my thoughts were, you know, like it's, you know, after, you know, it took me a good couple of years to kind of like process after, you know, saying and thinking about, I've had this experience. What can I do Look with this? Like, what, what can I do to make sense of this? You know, like, and it really led me to like this advocacy, you know, for, especially within social work, psychology and counseling, like trying to get more mental health providers aware of this, Okay. Um, but it came from that lens of just like, I've been through this, I have this experience, what can I do with it? Yep. And I don't remember the research. I actually, I really have to look at my computer for it because one of the things like they said that giving back to like the infertility community, whether that's through sharing your experience or doing something with that experience, whether you're raising money for a resolve or you're raising money for a foundation to help people yep. pay for IVF or something and like, and whatever it is, but they show that that really helps you kind of make sense of what you went through. Yeah. And it's helpful for not even to destroy your mental health, but also like your physical health too. I mean, they're solely, they're really tied together, Yeah. you know? So I'm always telling on this podcast too, is like, if anybody wants to share their experience, you have a platform, you know, like you have a yeah. platform, you, you can be like a guest and, you know, or find something to do in your local community or area to, to give back. Cause it's, it's so helpful, you know, to give back and feel like you're, you're doing something with this, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So, well, I think the one last question I have for you and the question I always ask at the end is, what is something that you would want like every man going through infertility, whether that's IUI adoption, any sort of form of family building, like what would you want them to know? Yeah. I, I think the first one is just to segue off what we were just talking about is it's so important to find a support system, even if it's just one person, um, you know, obviously I, I encourage you to, to really make efforts to talk to your partner, communicate to your partner, but, but think about what at least kind of one other person outside uh, your relationship who can support you um, can be, whether that's a friend, a counselor, a therapist, a social worker, a, you know, a, a rabbi or a priest, maybe if, you're, uh, if that's something that's meaningful in your life. Um, find at least one other person out there who can be a support system for you um, because it will, if nothing else, it's going to give you just somebody who you can kind of explain what's going on um, and, and sometimes you don't necessarily need somebody who's, who's, you know, going to help you deeply analyze all the things you're thinking about. It, sometimes literally just the act of sharing how you're feeling can be so, um, so kind of freeing. Uh, so I think that's. Yeah. And I think definitely finding your support system and, you know, as I wouldn't say as cliche as it is, but you're also like, you're not alone. Like there's still, there are so many stories out there and there's all, everyone knows somebody, you know, like, and I know through even just my experience of this, even bringing up the topic, 
you find out that oh so and so was a surrogate or mm-hmm. oh so and so had miscarriages or somebody had infertility or you know we always find those stories in little silos right we always kind of keep the little silos and stuff but really if you really want to reduce stigma and and shame around it like you just have we have to normalize experience that this is something that people go through you know and and we do that by providing that awareness so you know having a conversation you know about like what was this like you know it helps yeah Yeah. and and i'm hoping that you know listeners out there uh men especially will will know that there's and and really learn that there's this growing set of resources i feel like of of support groups and people like you who are really focusing in this work um and again you know if if reaching out to get support means you know sending somebody uh, a message on on instagram or on social media you know if you feel more comfortable kind of sharing in that more anonymous setting at least get it rolling that way because like i said sometimes just the act of sharing the difficult thing that you're going through um, and just like verbalizing it, externalizing it, uh, can just help it feel like there's a weight lifted off your shoulders. Yeah. Like I said, it's so important to connect with your partner too, but I think it's also important to have, you know, somebody who's outside of your relationship. Um, just so it's, it's not putting all that pressure on, you know, the only person you talk to about this is, is your partner, because I think that can be really, um, you know, challenging too. If, if, if again, as you said earlier, you're just spending all this time with your partner thinking about what's our next treatment, what's going to happen. Um, you've got to make space for other things too in your relationship. Yeah, absolutely. And like one of our, one of the previous guests, you know, Ellie Weinstein said, you know, like you really need your own support system, you know, like, and especially as men, you know, like we, we can be supportive, you know, for, you know, like our significant others, you know, like our spouses, wives, you know, your partners, but they can only do so much, mm-hmm. you know, like, and you get, you know, you, you get support in many different ways, you know, like, so like the example he gave was like, you know, my parents, like my parents support me in a different way than my, what my wife does, mm-hmm. you know, my brother, you know, like supports me in different ways than what my wife does, you know, like you find those different ways of support. So it was helpful to have. So you're not solely just putting it on, you know, your wife or your significant other. You know, like yep. it's about getting support in many directions and stuff because it's really, really need it for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Keegan, I think we're coming up on time and I really appreciate you having this conversation with me. And I I highly, everybody out there, highly recommend getting getting his book. I'm very informative um, and I, I really like how he kind of weaves in their story like along with the information and stuff and how that ties and makes it really resonate, I think, with a lot of people. So I would highly recommend getting his book. I will share his social media platforms. And yeah, I really appreciate the conversation and you being able to share that with us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I, I hope folks will check out the book. It's available on Amazon. Um, and uh, thank you, thank you again for having me for the the space you're creating for these conversations. It's really important. Uh, and uh, you know, like I said, if, if nothing else, men out there who are listening, you know, reach out. Uh, if you if you need a listening ear, um, happy to happy to do that. I've already had a few folks sending messages just through Instagram and that anonymous um, format, and and, and it's uh, I'm hoping it's helping. So you yeah. know, just reach out, connect, and, and as Stephen said, you're not alone. There, uh, through that connection, you'll find ways to make the journey a little bit easier. Yeah, absolutely. And it's helpful to know somebody has been through it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay.
Thank you for listening to the Miles Podcast. Miles Podcast is on Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, and Overcast. If you could like, rate, subscribe, and share the podcast to help other men or other couples find it, it'd be greatly appreciated. Be sure to follow me on Instagram and Twitter for updates on future episodes and more content related to infertility and family building. I also just started a Facebook page for the podcast, so you can search for it on there. As always, if you'd like to be a guest, please message me on my social media or email at themilespodcast at gmail.com. And I hope that you will continue this milestone journey with me.